Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 28th, 2022, the last day of February, the last show, in fact, of February 2022. We've been doing a lot of shows about violence in America, the potential and the history of violence in America. Uh, two of the, uh, the most successful recent shows have been about the likelihood of civil war in America. We did one with the uh, San Diego-based political scientist, Barbara Walter, who believes that it may happen in America. And also we did one with the Canadian journalist, Stephen Marsh, who believes that America is already in civil war. They both treated those civil war and violence as if it's somehow exceptional. But some of the shows we've been doing recently suggest that violence is not only ubiquitous in America, but somehow intrinsic to its very nature. Uh, did a sh very depressing show last week with uh, Christine Montross on how the mental health system and the American incarceration system have really become uh, one. We've done all sorts of shows about guns. We did a show a couple of years ago with Frank Smythe, one of the leading authorities on the NRA and the centrality of the NRA, its mythology in America. Violence then, as I suggested, is endemic. There's a great um, new podcast out, actually not so new, uh, called... Um, American Violence. It's a United States history podcast, and it suggests that the United States was born in violence. The nation gained its independence in violence. Its leaders expanded their power through violence, and the country was torn apart and tied back together again using violence. And then the podcast asked, but the question is, why are conflict and mayhem so pervasive in American life? This podcast tries to answer this question. And the podcast is presented by my guest today, uh, J.D. Dickey. He's a prolific writer. He's had a number of best-selling books. And he has a book out tomorrow appropriately called The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. It's a history book, but a history book uh, with a broader message. And I'm thrilled that uh, J.D. is joining us today. J.D., before we get to uh, Andrew Jackson's America, um, why, in your mind, is violence so pervasive in well, the American Republic outside the 1830s? I know your book is on the 1830s. Yeah. I think part of it has to do with the, uh, the way the Republic was born. Um, this is one of those cases where a, a republic that's born in violence also has it in its DNA to some degree over the years. So in the sense, we had a political revolution in the 1770s, but the social revolution took a lot longer to fully play out. You might say that, as some historians have said, the second American revolution was the Civil War. This one fought over uh, social and racial matters as opposed to the political concerns and the independence concerns of the first one. So we've actually had several revolutions, if you look at it that way. And in effect, my book is about the bridge between the two, about how a lot of the um, elements that weren't solved by the first revolution were already bubbling in American life in the 1830s, and then led up, of course, to the Civil War. 
And then after that, of course, um, it's a it's an ongoing uh, series of in terms of American violence and how it's expressed itself, whether in the 1880s with uh, Haymarket or something like that, in terms of the labor strife to uh, modern, uh, the latest incarnation of racial violence. So I, yeah, you're, you're, you are, J.D., a historian. The book, uh, The Republic of Violence, is uh, set in Andrew Jackson's America. Yeah, people will know you from your very successful book, The Amer American Demagogue, uh, about 18th century America. They'll also be familiar with your book, Rising in Flames, about uh, um, General Sherman's march. I wonder also, historians are in the business, of course, of forcing people to remember. Mm -hmm. But Americans have, and I'm not sure if they're unique here, but they have a particularly, uh, a particularly uh, successful way of forgetting. It's a country that seems to suffer mm -hmm. from amnesia. I, I did a show recently with a brilliant essayist uh, called Colette Brooks. She has an essay called Trapped in the Present Tense, or a new book out of a collection of essays, Meditations on American Memory. Her book is also about violence. It's actually built around the assassination of JFK. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with uh, Would you agree with with Brooks that Americans America is is a country dominated by violence, but American culture ha has a knack of conveniently forgetting that violence? Mm -hmm. And I guess you're in yeah. the business of reminding them. It's often an unpleasant reminder. Yes. Well, historical amnesia is legion um, in America, especially, but in a num any number of Western countries as well, because each generation tries to rewrite history to suit its own purposes. And the history that doesn't fit becomes forgotten or erased. And so the goal is to try to find certain elements in American history that have been overlooked and within that, within my perspective, I'm trying to find things that haven't fully been addressed within the context of those events. So in this case, with American violence, what we're talking about uh, in terms of the book, The Republic of Violence, is just the nature of why American society was so violent in the 1830s and how it expressed itself, especially abolitionists and uh, black citizens free black people. Um, and the book explores these topics and tries to bring out and, and I would say address some of the amnesia that you're talking about, because that's the worst aspect of this, to, to try to uncover why things have been effaced. Because this isn't revisionism, because these things were known at the time. It's counter to the revisionism that came in the years after the 1830s. And I think that's what any good history does, is it tries to reacquaint us with the era that it writes about without a lot of the baggage of later accretions of uh, myth. Yeah, your book isn't typical American history because it's not cheerful. No, it, it, it doesn't contain that sort of Whiggish narrative. It's not progressive. It doesn't go from darkness to light. We we had a show recently with a much more typical American history book, Linda Hirschman's book about the abolition movement. Uh, it's about how uh, a printer, a prophet, uh, Frederick Douglass and a contessa moved the nation. It's more whilst it recognizes the splits in the abolitionist movement, it's nonetheless has an element of heroism in the book. Mm -hmm. It's an optimistic book. 
I didn't get uh, I didn't get the sense that your book, The Republic of Violence, is a very cheerful book, JD. Is that fair? That is more than fair. And I think you could even broaden it to say that uh, the whole corpus of my work from the first book, Empire of Mud, all the way through this one is rather darkly tinged and not surprising because a lot of the things we're still struggling with have their roots in the 19th century. And to, to mention what you said in terms of kind of a counter to the Whiggish or progressive, you know, rosy-cheeked view. I, of I mean, would you include the Hirschman? And, and I loved uh, Lin, uh, talking to Linda Hirschman. This is in no way a critique of her. She's a delightful yeah. person and an excellent writer. But would you include Hirschman in that kind of historiography? Well, I think that beyond her alone, there are any number of historians that fit in that tradition, um, all the way from Gordon Wood to, um, oh, I can't even think of it, the uh, fellow who wrote about D-Day. Why am I not remembering his name? But the whole series of historians that have talked about the, uh, the striving of Americans to achieve a better place, and then they do, and then we're all much better for it. And that's that's true to a degree. I mean, it's hard to write about uh, things like the sacrifices made in World War II or the Civil War without some of that. But there are dark elements as well that certainly need to be addressed. Um, for example, how do you address the fact, just throwing this off the top of my head, that in the Revolutionary War, for example, um, that was that had elements of civil war to it as well uh, between loyalists and revolutionaries and what exactly that meant and what the uh, nature of Sam Adams' Sons of Liberty was, which from the other perspective, from the British perspective, could have been seen as a terrorist organization, but we see them as fundamentally patriotic. And, you know, if you're an American, it's kind of, it kind of goes without saying, well, they did the, the work of tarring and feathering or whatever it took to try to uh, drive out the English occupiers. But at the same time, it really does depend on your perspective. So I guess to link back to the initial question, I do think that there is there are some darker elements that in my work that certainly I just feel a nagging sense that I have to address to get well, over. It's an in, uh, to, to borrow that horrible title from Al Gore, it's an inconvenient truth. No one really wants to hear it. And I'm right. curious as to your thoughts on... Um, I always bring Tocqueville up in this show because mm -hmm. I think he's a brilliant writer and he's been so influential. I mean, yeah. Tocqueville came to America almost at the same time as, as the period that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And he didn't ignore slavery or violence, of course, but he reported back on a youthful, virile, democratic republic. Do you think he simply got it wrong? Did he simply ignore the truth about an America? Did he just not see it? He was essentially a tourist, came for a few months, went back and, 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 and wrote about a country that didn't really exist? Well, no, I think he's a brilliant writer. And I think that uh, for what his thesis was about the nature of American democracy at the popular level and how um, presidents in the 1820s and 1830s kind of expressed and channeled that, I think it's, it's brilliant for what it was. And the fact that it survives almost 200 years later is a testament to its ongoing value. I would add to it, however, that there are writers from Europe at the same time who also have valuable perspectives and we should still take a look at. And I think uh, foremost among those, or at least one of the highest that I constantly refer back to at the time is the British writer Harriet Martineau. And she was a trailblazing feminist as well as a, a firmly 
abolitionist uh, thinker. And she came over here and wrote multiple volumes about America. And they're completely obscure now, even though the things she was writing about are still the same things we struggle with today. And so my goal in this project is, not, is to, to try to broaden the lens beyond Tocqueville and to include other writers like uh, Martineau as valuable um, perspectives on uh, the So are you saying, J.D., that, and, and, and I don't think you're the first person certainly to say this, that America was essentially bipolar? But mm -hmm. there were two worlds. There was this world of terrible violence bound up in race. And then the American democracy that Tocqueville saw, they coexisted. They were both true mm -hmm. um, and they barely interacted. Except in the pages of my book. In, in, in times of stress, the white working class, for example, that Andrew Jackson championed and was able to bring to power uh, interacted quite closely in the major northern cities with uh, free black people and abolitionists. And inter by interacted, I mean often attacked or intimidated. And part of this was a contest for who was going to, you know, benefit from the economic uh, largesse of the time, at least until the Panic of 1837. And part of it was the leftover animus that had been created. Um, from the unsettled questions of the revolution and also by the ongoing problems. And is the, uh, uh, jumping in here, J.D., yeah. it, it, when you talk about these unsettled questions of the revolution, it's mm -hmm. essentially slavery, isn't it? I think slavery is one of them, but there are also class issues. Um, but there are always uh, class issues. There's yeah, class but, issues now. Every yeah. country in the world throughout history has had class issues. That's that's Not true. That and I think that I think that race and slavery and then later segregation and all the whole collective imprint of that is certainly the one other major narrative. But, but also the contradiction between that, which was mm -hmm. true, yeah, and the claims of this republic mm -hmm. of virtue and decency and reinventing right. politics and well, community. exactly. Have you read uh, 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup that was made into the movie? No, I, I know the movie. I haven't okay. read it. So in the book, Northup in his jail cell after being kidnapped from the North is, is in a jail cell in Washington, D.C. And he writes, because this is later that he writes about, that he can see the Capitol from his jail cell and everything that it represents and the contradiction therein of the Republic promising so much for everyone, and yet at the same time, the capital of that republic holding slave pens and slave prisons and acting as a mart for the shipment of people to the South. And so I can't think of a better uh, image than that. And, uh, and my point is that it's not just people who are writing today that recognized it. It was it was recognized at the time, and certainly- uh, Well, it wasn't hard to recognize. <laughs> no, but it- I mean, if you were For being honest, part. I mean, it depends. It depends on what state. It wasn't you were. a secret. No, but it depends on what state you were in. For example, in Ohio, this is a state that, in later years, as well as Illinois, simply banned black people from living there. So, if you wanted to cover your eyes and your ears, certainly you could avoid thinking about it. If you're living in a state that's only home to white people, you know, slavery might be something very foreign to that. You might read about it. But if it's not in front of you, if you're in a northern state where it's not like that, then, yeah, you can compartmentalize. 
I'm speaking with J.D. Dickey, the author of The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. We've spent the first half of the show, J.D., talking quite generally about the the roots of violence uh, in America from the revolution onwards, and probably before the revolution. I mean, if we wanted to talk more, we could probably talk about the roots of violence in the colonial age. Um, and I certainly we haven't even mentioned uh, Native Americans. I mean, obviously, this is a complicated subject. But after the break, we're going to take a short break, JD. Mm-hmm. And after the break, I want to talk specifically about Andrew Jackson, who he was, the kind of violence that you suggest was perhaps the most violent period in American history in the 1830s, what happened, and of course, the role of abolition in all this. So mm-hmm. hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, Back to Keenon. We are back with J.D. Dickey, the author of The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. Uh, Andrew Jackson, I think, is rather like Teddy Roosevelt. He's always mentioned, although I'm not sure everyone really understands that much about him. Uh, Tell me what your take on Jackson is, uh, J.D. How unique is he in American history? Lots of comparisons, of course, made recently with Trump. Are there are there other American politicians who we can compare with Jackson? Uh, well, Trump certainly tried to emulate him in style. Uh, but what we have to remember is Jackson was the first successful populist politician and perhaps the only one. Uh, sir, other failed presidential candidates like William Jennings Bryan tried to take advantage of the Jackson mythology and failed. But Jackson himself is somewhat inimitable, not only because of the way he championed the white working class, but also his accretion of power and the expansion of the imperial presidency. 
which is still with us today, of course. And so we could go through the history book litany of what exactly he did to expand the presidency, all the way from vetoing the charter of the Second Bank of the United States, the rechartering to the Trail of Tears and the expulsion of Native Americans from Georgia, to the nullification crisis with uh, South Carolina. So there are any number of ways in which Jackson put his imprint on the country and that allowed people or enabled people to call him King Andrew and to to create such uh, such a reaction in American culture that the Whig Party was in fact created during the era of Jackson. But was Jackson's populism, it was an agrarian populism directed against the old or the, the young ruling class, the aristocracy, the cultural and intellectual aristocracy in America. Is that fair? That's true. And it's also somewhat ironic because uh, he, as much as he was, he tried to arrogate federal power, he also vetoed any number of bills to expand the role of the federal government, famously in national improvements like intercontinental roads and things like that. And so along with his Democratic Party, he was quite wary of states' rights being taken away. And yet at the same time, he fought for greater power for himself. Of course, after his term ended, the federal government still retained that much power and just increased it in the years following. What about the cult of violence in Jackson? He was a, a violent man. Your book uh, has some photos of Jackson himself participating in violent actions. The book is full mm -hmm. of descriptions of violence. Uh, mm -hmm. How important is Jackson himself in this cult of violence? I think it's fundamental in many ways um, because Jackson, of course, famously was a duelist who carried around lead in his body from previous gunfights. And he also uh, condemned mob violence, but when it involved his own supporters, he was willing to occasionally look the other way. And what we have to remember is that elections at the time were not genteel affairs. I mean, these were cases of men battling over the ballot box, literally. Um, actually using clubs and, and uh, other methods to intimidate their opponents. And to, that's one thing that we forget, is that the, the cruelty and kind of barbarity of, of politics was at its height in the 1830s. Right. J.D., you say that, I mean, no one's ever claiming that America is not violent. Mm -hmm. We know that. That's given. You only have to right. spend 10 minutes in the country. Um, but why was the 1830s, at least in your mind, the most violent decade in American history? There are several reasons. I think you could start with the electoral violence. When we think about voter suppression today, it's largely on the books or through means of intimidation, subtle ways to keep voters who don't vote for a given party from the ballot box. Then it involved bricks and clubs. You stood outside a polling place and kept your opponents from voting along with other methods of intimidation. So starting with that point, if that's the fundamental right of citizens in the Republic and it's contested through physical force, then everything else flows from that. And so you not only get the racial animus involved in attacking abolitionists and attacking black people, but then you have the anti-Catholic effect as well. There's an Ursuline con convent that's attacked during this era. I don't write about it necessarily, but it certainly appears in uh, the uh, religious histories of the country and even an anti-ballooning riot. There are no more riots in this period than in any other 
period in American history. And yeah, I so the, the snow was the, the you write about the uh, the snow riot in 1835. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And I should mention, along with all of these riots, and they're listed in the book, we have to remember that the consumption of alcohol was at its greatest level in American history. There's a great book called The Alcoholic Republic. It's several decades old, but still very worthy in terms of breaking down what percentage, how many Americans drank per year. And I can't remember what the actual number is, but it's two to three times what it is today. And a lot of that is spirits, whiskey. You know, it's funny, and Tocqueville Talk, writes about that and suggests mm -hmm. that people were shamed into not drinking, but obviously yeah. that shaming wasn't very effective. No, no, at that time it wasn't. Now, it took 80 years, but the shaming eventually worked and temperance won in the 1910s. But in the 1830s, it was still, you know, at its very beginning. And we saw that it may have been inevitable. Simply and the violence, of course, went both ways. There was the... Slave Rebellion, Nate Turner's Rebellion of 1831. So mm -hmm. it wasn't as if the good people weren't violent and the bad people were. It was just simply a violent society. Yeah, that's very much true. I mean, the um, what you could say is the progressive forces fought less, but they did fight and they fought back. And you could you could analyze a slave rebellion in any from any perspective, including plenty of people who justify it as necessary violence versus the violence of just attacking people on the basis of their skin color. But to your point, it is true. It, it affected and infiltrated all aspects of society. And when you have even Abe Lincoln commenting on it in 1837 as a very obscure politician of the time, um, it really says something, I think, to just how widespread it was. You're not a comparative historian, J.D. You, no. You've spent your life writing about America. But how does America, do you think, in the 1830s compare with France in the 1830s or Britain or Russia? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I certainly can't speak. When it to, comes to violence. Yeah, I certainly can't speak to Russia. And of course, France at the time was undergoing its own convulsions about that. You know, you think about Louis Philippe and, and that sort of thing and the, uh, the counter reaction that happened to the revolution and then the, the, the counter reaction to the counter revolution and everything else. So certainly France was violent um, at the time. And, and you had political and you obviously you had the political revolutions of 1848. Oh, 1848, which comes after the narrative of this book. So I, I certainly didn't touch on that. But because you brought that up, I do want to mention that a lot of Europeans felt a kinship with America in terms of the feeling of being able to influence it. And that's why a lot of uh, British and other writers came over here, not only to comment on this country, but also to actually impact it. The British, of course, had outlawed slavery in 1833. It took about five years to become effective. And some of their orators, like George Thompson, came over here and got their opportunity to be attacked by American mobs. Right. You, you, you write a, a, about Thompson. To what extent do you think the violence was particularly pronounced in America because it somehow wasn't captured politically in other words it wasn't class violence in in a conventional european sense mm -hmm. um, because but it, it was more anarchic it was obviously very much rooted in race mm -hmm. and in a figure like jackson jackson's populism that whilst he relied on the support of what you call the white working class he didn't have any class rhetoric in his political discourse, did he? 
Well, the class rhetoric that Jackson... But it certainly wasn't a Marxist-style... Well, no, not, not in that sense, but it was antithetical. In, the, in that way, certainly Trump draws from it, in that everybody knew what Jackson was against, but what powered his base, as it were, were was the rhetoric against the Northeastern elites that had previously ruled American politics. And there right. were the William, Gar the, the, the William Lloyd Garrisons and... Yeah. Uh, Theodore Dwight Wells, who eventually drove the abolitionist movement. Yes, absolutely. And those people faced the clubs and the bricks and the attempted lynchings of many of Jackson's supporters. And it wasn't that Jackson directed them toward the abolitionists specifically, except on occasion, which I point out in the book, but rather the momentum that he had built up with his political party made it inevitable that it would be expressed in animus and violence toward people who weren't cooperating with the governing theory at the time. It sounds like you know who, doesn't it? A <laughs> little bit. Yeah. There are there are more than a few parallels. Well let's talk about the let's talk specifically about the the subtitle um JD of the book, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. We've talked about Jackson. Yes. This phrase, the tormented rise, is, is again a very dark J.D. Dickey style language. Mm -hmm. Others like, uh, like Hirschman, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't talk about the rise of abolition as tormented. Why do you choose that word? Let me tell you how I came to the subtitle. Uh, the title of the book was clear and it was obvious from the beginning, but the subtitle was basically created in, almost intuitively as I was writing the book. And I brought it up to my editor. We've often, my editor and I, uh, argued over subtitles because there's a lot of content. That's what editors do. That's all they yeah. do, right? Exactly. Because they didn't do anything else. Right. And, and so she bought it immediately. She said, of course, the tormented rise. And the reason it is a tormented rise and it leads uh, the subtitle, even before Andrew Jackson's America, is because the threats were not only external. And I really want to add this because I know that any reviews of this book or the way people are going to comment on it is going to be mainly focused on the Jackson element and on the racial element for good reason. But I have to say another aspect of the tormented rise is also the fact that this is a, a, almost a perfect study of how social movements can self-destruct out of the quest for moral purity. And in effect, mm. by the end of the decade, that's what William Lloyd Garrison and some of his followers had done. They took a movement that was beginning to achieve momentum and bogged it down and ultimately created schism out of any number of issues that didn't matter. And foremost among them was what I would call the clerical war that erupted with the Congregationalist preachers in 1837 over the meaning of the Sabbath. Now, if we look at that now, we would say, what does that have to do with abolition? And a lot of people at the time thought so too. But, but because it was something of a purity test, it became the first wedge in the movement, dividing the more radical figures from the more moderate. And so- It's interesting that, uh, yeah, uh, I, I did a, uh, an interview last week with Akash Kapoor, who wrote about a utopian community in South India, very popular book. And it's funny that uh, he has a similar critique of utopian movements. Are you suggesting then that the abolitionist movement was, in a sense, utopian? Because Hirschman, Hirschman describes the divisions as being kind of almost racist. Uh, uh, Marie Weston Chapman, the... Contessa in the movement, she suggests, was 
a little bit of a racist, which accounts mm-hmm. for her disagreements with Frederick Douglass. But you're suggesting it was a bit more profound in political terms. Indeed. I mean, the movement was was riven by so much uh, division by the end of the decade that you could point to figures like Garrison, who were utopian, and point to figures like Arthur and Lewis Tapp and the industrialists, uh, one of whom went on to create a firm that led the way to Dun and Bradstreet. And those people were much more pragmatic. Now, that doesn't mean that the pragmatists were necessarily right because the utopians drove the energy of the movement. And yet by the end of the decade, the limits on utopian thinking, I think, were clear. And so we had this general schism between people who were willing to um, play ball with Washington politicians who might favor number at least, uh, versus people who were seeking moral purity. Garrison would have been. And did that exist within the African-American community, too? We did a show about a a 20th century white, a 20th century NCAAP leader Mm -hmm. who the author at least suggests was rather too conciliatory. I mean, it's not just um, Douglas you write about. You cover some of the less well-known figures like David Ruggles, uh, Mm -hmm. James Fortin, uh, African-American figures, often quite wealthy, who were part of the abolitionist movement. Were they as riven as, as, as the white American abolitionists? I think you can v- very much say so in the 1830s, because, um, for example, Ruggles was the champion of liberating black people from their enslaved people who tried to kidnap them. And his work paved the way for the Underground Railroad, among other things. And figures like him, along with Henry Highland Garnet and others, represented the more radical end. And then you had the more conservative end, which were people I write about, like Samuel Cornish, who tended to be ministers. And so, yeah. in effect, a large split in the Black community was between the traditional... always existed, and it's quite natural. And, and, and I mean, that that doesn't explain the Republic of Violence, does it? Or were the, 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 were the, the radicals much more sympathetic to violence. No, it doesn't explain the Republic of Violence because most of these groups, not necessarily Ruggles, but most of these people adopted policies of nonviolence. But it does relate to the tormented rise and the notion of schism within the group. And that's why it's important that the subtitle, going back to what we were talking about, uh, relates to this because it's not just a question of external enemies throwing rocks and uh, bottles and bricks. It's also a question of the cohesion of the movement within itself. The Republic of Violence, the tormented rise of abolition in Andrew Jackson's America does certainly doesn't pull any punches, nor does its author, J.D. Dickey. What about the longer term consequences? We've done so many shows, J.D., on racism, on violence from the foundations of racing, racist policing, Obviously, we've done many shows on the history of lynching and violence and mobs, Tulsa and so on. Um, we've done a lot of stuff on America, African-American women and their role in the emancipation. What does the 18, what is the major cultural, institutional, political legacy of this incredibly violent period in the 1830s? I, th- I think it's clear. I think this is where the template was established, even thinking beyond race. If you look at the 1830s as a way in which street violence is politics done by other means, 
then what we have every decade or every other decade is a resort to domestic violence. I mean, yeah, of course, street violence, domestic street electoral violence as a method for putting pressure on politicians to do what these actors want them to. So two decades after the 1830s, we have the Know Nothing riots in Washington, D.C., in which Baltimore thugs come down. Uh, they're called the Plug Uglies and decide that they want to attack the U.S. government. Sound familiar? And mm, then so. put down by a company of U.S. Marines. And so that happens in the 1850s. And then later, that kind of violent movement is harnessed by the left, by labor groups, as I mentioned, like the Pullman strike and Haymarket. And what about the Civil War? Was that just this violence scaled up and institutionalized? That's an argument, certainly. I mean, and that is an argument that I wouldn't disagree with if you consider that the different political factions break apart because of the, the uh, election of 1860, which had just galvanized the, uh, the differences in America already. And I think even beyond that, in the 1880s, leading the way toward the horrible 1910s, that's another era of violence that's often less commented on, all the way to today. But the template to me starts here, because before this, before the 1830s, a lot of the violence that had happened at the street level in American life had petered out in the 1780s with the end of the revolution. And these decades had passed, and then it suddenly emerges in the 1830s and people act shock, shocked. There's so much shock related to it. All you have to do is go to the pages of something like Niles Weekly Register to see the authors saying, how can this happen here? This isn't what the Republic is all about. Can this Republic, which you call the Republic of Violence, can it change its spots? How can America get beyond violence? How can it liberate itself from this terrible history? Well, I think the first thing we can do is talk about it. And the, the books- Which you, you're doing, of course, yes, and your book other, is doing. Yeah, the other authors that you've mentioned and, and some of the ones that have inspired me talk about as well, um, to, to point it out and to show that uh, it's often destructive, but that people have used it to their benefit as well. And I live in Portland, Oregon, and for about six to eight months, there were constant street battles with the police, usually not involving people getting killed. Occasionally they did, but I've seen it up front. And I had a version of my uh, preface to the book talking about it and then thought it was extraneous and probably hard to justify in a historical context. But I do think that it is to some degree endemic. And I think the reason it is endemic is because it's an expression of political willpower among the different factions. So will it change? Will it improve? I wouldn't hold my breath. I think. What it, about the, the sort of the evangelical quality of these social reform movements? Uh, you write about the Second Great Awakening. You believe that this was really important, but you seem to be suggesting that these evangelical movements, because of their utopianism, have the roots of violence sewn into them. Well, I I wouldn't say that. I think that you can find a line that links utopian movements in the 1830s with the later expression of progressive reform in the 1880s. But almost all of the activists that I talk about rejected nonviolence, with some exceptions like David Ruggles, who felt that it was necessary to liberate slaves. 
but rather they were the victims of it. Because really at the beginning of this period of urban violence as an expression of political will, what we see is that there were people who were more victimized by it and the victimizers, but eventually it starts getting various, it gets confused because both sides are using it. Obviously by the end of the 1850s, somebody like uh, John Brown is clearly well-versed at this and is trying to move the country toward a non-slavery post-racial future, and he's using violence to do it. But it didn't happen at the time, in the 1830s. To, to borrow some language from Philip Roth, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of this moral stain on the country, uh, you talk about this tormented rise of abolition, in my mind at least, perhaps as an outsider, the arguments against the moral arguments against or every argument against slavery are so self-evident yeah right but the okay. idea of there being a tormented rise of abolition in america mm -hmm. uh has created this terrible moral stench this stain which mm -hmm. probably will never go away is that fair well let me just understand what you're saying that because of the um the repugnance of slavery and the overwhelming um, moral outrage of it. And that, the fact that it was such a struggle to get rid of it, and even yeah. now we're still sort of suffering from the repercussions of the, the controversies of abolition and the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, what we, obviously the era we live in today is one that was forged by the Civil War and Reconstruction. We have to say both of those because you get slavery out of Reconstruction, excuse me, you get um, segregation out of Reconstruction and then redlining and everything else that, that we know well today. And at the beginning, this was the charged atmosphere out of which a lot of these ideological ferments came from. And that is the context in which it exists. And it's certainly an era that lives on and we can see it uh, on our TV screens today. Not cheerful stuff, but it needs to be understood and read. And nobody, I think, has, has, has laid this thing out as starkly and as honestly as J.D. Dickey in his new book, The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. I'd also suggest uh, listening to his podcast, American Violence. Uh, J.D., in addition to uh, your new book, uh, what else should people be reading? Yes. Uh, so I can recommend a couple books. And I want to say this before I recommend them. My book is a narrative nonfiction. And so I'm basically following a half dozen figures throughout this period in the classic narrative style. But for right. a, a more straightforward history of the time, I would recommend uh, Manisha Sinha's The Slave's Cause which is a, that is basically the Bible of the abolition movement. Um, and it's a thick book. I might have it around here somewhere. And it is uh, well worth reading. And also Black Abolitionists, a book, a book by uh, Benjamin Quarles from 1969 that really began the ball rolling with our modern understanding of the abolition movement, as opposed to the previous understanding in the 1950s and before where the claims were made that it was just a bunch of fanatics uh, motivated by enthusiastic religion. And so those two books I would uh, recommend most highly. Well, uh, I would put those books on your reading list, as well as J.D. Dickey's new book, The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. It's 
out tomorrow. So order it now. Put it up the charts. Congratulations, JD. Final question. Uh, I'm asking everyone on the show. JD Dickey, the author of The Republic of Violence. Uh, Who's in charge, JD? Who runs the world? Ah, who runs the world? That is a very, very good question in the era of social media. Obviously, uh, people on the left would say it's people with money and power and influence. And yet, often at the same time, we see these galvanizing social movements rise up uh, from the grassroots, connected through Facebook and Twitter and everything else in contest to that. So I I think you could say technically it's elites who are in charge. And yet at the same time, the power of elites is always threatened. And, And that's one of the reasons we get the political battle.